Hey, Salt City. Uh, my name is Jordan Adams. I'm the teaching pastor here if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet. Um, when Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick, which, okay, Herman Melville, what a name to start out the day with. But when he wrote Moby Dick, which has come to be considered one of the most iconic American novels ever written, that is pretty much universally considered to be just a genius work of art as a novel. Uh, when he first released it, it was a total failure. So much so that he had to get a different job because he couldn't cut it as a writer. Um, because essentially people just didn't get it. It went over their heads. They're like, why, why is this dude talking about some weird captain and an evil fish? Like, what's going on? It just, it flew over their heads. When Jesus of Nazareth came to earth and he taught us how to live, the way I would summarize the collective response of the world was, huh? <laughs> like, what is, this, what is this dude talking about? And specifically the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever preached, the collective response of Jesus' disciples was like, this seems way too hard for us. Like you're saying, if we're even angry in our heart, it's like committing murder. Like who can even live up to that standard? You're talking about eating my flesh, drinking my blood. What, what does that mean? Like we, we just, we don't get this. And so what ended up happening to help Moby Dick become as famous as it is and recognized for the genius work that it was is William Faulkner and Hemingway and some of these writers that came later recognized the genius of Moby Dick and started advocating for it to the world. And as they started talking about how significant it was, the world essentially said, oh, we get it now. Like we see it. The Holy Spirit is the advocate who reveals and applies the, the genius of Jesus Christ to our lives. So essentially, the world didn't get the message of Jesus Christ. They didn't see the beauty and genius. It didn't land with them. But then Acts 2 came, Pentecost came, the Spirit came down, and the world started to see, oh, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the news that we've been waiting for. And so this is what I want to talk about in John 14 today. And, and this is also influenced by John 16, but we'll primarily reference John 14 is how the Holy Spirit can apply the teachings of Jesus personally to our soul and what he can do in our lives. And so this is what the Holy Spirit does is he teaches us how to live. He shows us who we are and he argues with us about who we are, which I know that doesn't make a lot of sense. I'll get to that in a minute, but, but let me start with this one that the Holy Spirit teaches us how to live. So the entire conversation about the Holy Spirit in John 14 kind of revolves around this verse in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. That's what Jesus says to his disciples and what he says to us. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Now notice, there's no disclaimers on that. There's no kind of softening of that blunt edge that seems so difficult to do to always obey the commands of Jesus. And, and guys, we got to recognize that this is what the call to discipleship is from Jesus Christ. So a lot of us who consider ourselves Christians or disciples of Jesus think that what that means is that we go to church on Sunday. Maybe we attend a connection group periodically. Maybe you pray or read your Bible here and there. But what Jesus is saying in John 14 is that it's way more than that that it means obedience to all of his commands, which we've got books 
stacked up in the Bible with the commands of Jesus. He spent years teaching us how to live. And so in order to obey all the commands of Jesus, it would, it would require a total renovation of all aspects of who you are as a human being. You would have to love different things than what you love right now. Your entire mind would have to change about what's good. Your, your actions and behaviors and your instincts throughout the world would have to change. So the call to discipleship to Jesus Christ is far more than doing a couple church things. It's actually this holistic renovation of everything that you are. And the reality is, is that a lot of us that even would consider ourselves Christians haven't actually got that. We haven't actually seen the beauty of Jesus to the point that all of our lives would change because we haven't actually heard the words of the Holy Spirit. We haven't actually encountered him. And, and for a lot of us, that call seems impossible. We've kind of given up on this idea of actually looking like Jesus in our lives. And it is impossible alone, but it's not impossible with the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus wants to argue for us. And so the Holy Spirit teaches us how to live like Jesus. Look at verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit will teach us all things, which is a really fascinating idea because Jesus just got through teaching his disciples all things, right? Jesus was a rabbi, which the word rabbi literally means teacher. And he had just spent three years teaching his disciples who he's talking to in this context, how to live in essentially every given scenario that you could have. And so why is Jesus saying that they need another teacher? Well, Jesus is saying that they need someone to take his teachings and to personalize them, to make them beautiful in their lives, to, to apply them, right? So, so think of this as if, if when, you're, when you're in a college classroom and a professor gets up and starts teaching the classroom and the professor might teach what's true and good, but it, it might not land in anyone's soul. They might, they might not get it, right? It might go over their heads. And so what do they need? They need a tutor, to take the things that were taught that were true and to personally apply them in their lives. And so Jesus is our teacher, but the Holy Spirit is our tutor. He takes that true teaching of Jesus and he applies it specifically to your soul. But the problem with a tutor is you go to a tutor for an hour and then you leave, but this is the teacher, the tutor, the counselor who's with us constantly and teaching us constantly in our lives. And he's making the teachings of Jesus beautiful and real to us personally. He's specifying them to our soul. So this actually happened to me this week. So I had the chance to jump on a Zoom call that was kind of a prayer gathering for pastors in our city. And they invited this pastor from Nashville by the name of Ray Ortland to jump on, who I've been increasingly more influenced by him. The dude just, yeah, he, he just, he's just so much like Jesus. <laughs> and, and when he smiles, you feel like you're getting a hug, even when it's through a computer screen. And so Ray opened his mouth and he started talking about Jesus. And the second the dude opened his mouth, it, it was like kind of the secrets of my soul were uncovered. Like my fears and my hurt and my pain and my insecurity that I had been walking with that essentially nobody knew, all of a sudden it's like 
Ray was speaking directly at those things. And maybe you guys have had this experience in the past where it's like, is this guy reading my mind? Like, it was like he was looking into my soul. And it's like, how? This dude doesn't know me. Well, yeah, Ray Ortland doesn't know me, but the Holy Spirit does. And he was taking the words of Ray in scripture, which actually were Jesus's words. And he was specifically, the Holy Spirit was specifically applying those in my soul in the way that I needed to hear. And that's how the Holy Spirit can transform you is when he applies those words of Jesus to your soul. Now, if that's true, if we have a personal counselor and tutor in the Holy Spirit who's applying the words of Jesus to our soul, then why aren't we different? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is because we don't know how to listen to the Holy Spirit. What's true of every genuine Christian is that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We'll unpack that in a minute. That's true of every genuine Christian but there's a remarkable number of us that don't actually know how to listen to his voice and access his power. And so we have an, a limited ability to actually live like Jesus in our lives because we're not accessing the power of the Holy Spirit by listening to his voice. Here's the deal. You can own a Harley, but it doesn't make you a biker unless you know how to ride the thing, right? So, you, so you've got to take motorcycle lessons. You've got to figure out how to ride a Harley, and, and you can't do like the motorcycle wave. You know what I'm talking about? I've always wanted to be this cool. I just think it's so cool. That, that little like two finger wave kind of down like this at each other. If I'm driving my Honda Accord around and I see a biker and I like do the motorcycle wave through the window, it's not, it's not a good vibe, guys, okay? It's not what we should be doing. And it doesn't matter if I own a Harley. You can't do the biker wave until you know how to ride it. So the point is not to just own it. It's to use it, to access it, to ride it. Here's the deal. The, the point of having the Holy Spirit is not only to have him living inside of you, but to understand how to hear his voice and access his power in reality in your daily life. But a lot of us don't actually know how to hear his voice and access his power. And so I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to, to intentionally start a process in your life of trying to listen to that Holy Spirit who lives inside of you and ask him how he wants you to live for Jesus. So let me just rapid fire a few ways that you can start doing that in your life. Okay, first one, ask him to help you hear his voice. <laughs> if it's true that he lives inside of you and you wanna hear his voice, why don't you ask him to help you? That's a start. So start consistently asking the Holy Spirit to help you hear his voice in your life. Meditate on scripture until it does something to you. In John 14, Jesus says that the spirit is the spirit of truth, which means that when we hear the words of the Bible read out loud, those are the same words as the spirit. There's no difference between the Holy Spirit's words and scripture's words or no difference between the Holy Spirit and Jesus. If we're Jesus people, we're spirit people. And so start meditating on scripture and stay there until it does something to your life. I think of that, that story of Jacob where he wrestled with God and he's like, I'm not letting go until you bless me. Have that attitude when you show up to be with God in the morning. Stay there until God does something in your soul, until it becomes beautiful to you, until it becomes real to you. Don't let go of God until he starts to do something. So meditate on scripture. Practice a little bit of other meditation. Now, okay, now I know there's like some differences of ideas on this. Here's all I mean by this is figure out how to be self-controlled with your own mind. So here's something I'm trying to do is I'm trying to every day for a period of time, think about nothing but my breath for five minutes. 
which do you have any idea how hard that is? Like I, I, I usually can't make it 20 seconds because my brain is popping around and I'm thinking about what's coming up and I'm nervous about the future and I'm, I'm analyzing my day. Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to teach myself how to quiet my mind and to get out of my own head so I can actually listen to the voice of the spirit. So start trying to be self-controlled over your own mind. So sit somewhere, take deep breaths and only think about those breaths and then start to pray, quiet yourself down. Here's another one. When somebody comes to mind randomly, don't assume that it was random. Assume that it was the Holy Spirit. So pray for that person and then take it a step further. Call them and say, hey, I feel like God might have just brought you to mind. Is there anything specific I can pray for you for or any way I can help you? Don't assume things like that are random, but believe that God actually is speaking in your life and speaking in the world. Pray during conversations. When you're talking to someone, have a conversation with them and a conversation with God about them and ask God how you can encourage that person in the moment. Ask God to give you the gift of prophecy. Okay, so New Testament prophecy is less about predicting the future, and it's more about speaking truthful words with power specifically into people's lives. And so when I, when I preach or when I meet with someone who's struggling, I ask God before that conversation, would you give me prophecy? Would you give me your insight into that person's soul and how to speak truth specifically into that person's life? So what happened with Ray Ortland was that that was not Ray speaking. It was the spirit speaking. That was prophecy. Ask God for that. Okay, last one. I know I've, I've hit you with a lot of stuff. Just pick one or two of those and start working on them. But last one. Tell God what you think or feel in, pra in prayer and then wait for him to respond like a normal conversation. God is a person, right? He's, he's different than just a human being, but he's a personal being. So hopefully when you're having conversations with people, you don't just talk the, other, the entire time and not give them an opportunity to respond. And so speak to God about the concerns of your heart and then wait for God to speak back to you. Maybe flip through a psalm and see him speaking through his word. All right, so... The Holy Spirit teaches us how to live as we learn how to listen to him. The second thing that the Spirit does is it, it says that the Holy Spirit teaches us how to live and he reminds us of who we are. So what does he remind us of? He shows us who we are. That's what the Spirit does. So who are you? You are in Christ by the Spirit. Look at verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Okay, back up. Can I read that again and actually listen to what this is saying? Okay, Jesus said this. This is wild. Verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. So Jesus has been using Trinitarian language throughout all of John 14. And, and we're not going to get into the depths of the, the Trinity at this point, but the Trinity, think of it as this, this loving community of people who are the, of God who is one, but also distinct personalities. And they've essentially been throwing a party for each other throughout all of history where they're celebrating over each other and have been in fullness of joy throughout all of time. So he's talking about the Trinity. And then here's what Jesus does is he says, I want to, by my spirit, pull you into the reality of the Trinity. I want you to be in me and I'll be in you. I want you to experience the loving joy and community and presence of the Trinity. So 
Jesus says he's not going to leave us as orphans, implying that he'll adopt us into his family. What he means by that is we will, in some mystical sense, get to experience the beauty of the Trinity by his spirit. That's wild. So here's what Jesus is saying is by pulling you into himself, by you being in Christ, he wants you to be a little walking Jesus around earth. Okay, so, so the term Christian means little Christ. So what do we mean when we say little Christ? Because I think sometimes we think what we mean by that is like, oh, we're gonna you know, give it a little bit of a shot to try and look kind of like Jesus, but we're really sinful and so we won't really even get that close. So what we mean by little Christ is like, if you've ever been to a basketball game, at halftime, every once in a while, they'll bring out like some eight-year-olds and give them a basketball and some jerseys and say, go have fun, kids. And they'll like try to play basketball and every once in a while, they'll make a shot and the crowd will go nuts. And, and, and we, we're kind of like, oh, they're kind of like these basketball players. They're like little basketball players where they're trying to Im- imitate these NBA players and college players, but they're not actually like them in any real sense. I think sometimes that's how we think of Christians is like, oh, that's cute. They're trying so hard to be like Jesus. No, Jesus is saying that by his spirit, he wants to animate your body so that when you walk around on earth, it's like Jesus is walking around on earth. He wants to clone himself in you. How will Jesus's mission be continued on earth is he will create a bunch of other Jesuses so that when your neighbor sees you walking down the street or sees you walk in their door to talk to them about life and about Jesus, it's like Jesus is speaking to them. That's the type of power he can give you with the Holy Spirit. Question, have you ever actually thought that was possible? Have you ever dared to dream that Jesus could actually revolutionize your entire life like that by his spirit? Because if you assume that transformation like that, renovation of your entire person in the spirit, if you assume that that's not even possible, then you won't pray for it, you won't try it, you'll settle for something that isn't really discipleship to Jesus, but just kind of looks like Christianity, but isn't actually transformation into his character. And here's the thing. Jesus wants to transform you into his image, but not just you individually, but he wants to transform us collectively into Christ. So look at verse 16. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. All right. So here's the deal that you right there is plural. Okay, so the English language is just rough. We have no way of saying a plural you unless you're from the South, okay? But, but this is what Jesus is saying, is I will give y'all another helper to be with y'all forever. Feels very awkward coming out of my mouth, but I don't know how to talk about this besides that, okay? So Jesus is saying y'all here, he's, he's talking to everyone, and he's saying we collectively will become the family of God by the Spirit. And we collectively will be formed into the image of Jesus with God as our father. So here's what this is saying is you can't accept God as father unless you accept all of his kids as your brothers and sisters. 
in order to be a part of God's transformed family, you have to see him as your father and you have to understand and live in love with all of your brothers and sisters. Now, what is God's family like? God's family is diverse and it's unified. Okay, we see that picture in Revelation where it says that every tribe, nation, and tongue will be worshiping him, where God's family will be made visible together and they'll be from all types of backgrounds, languages, um, all types of socioeconomic backgrounds, all types of life experiences, um, and all types of skin colors. And they will be worshiping Jesus before the throne. So there will be diversity and also unity. Diverse in life experience, in background, unified in their desire to know Christ. And so here's the question of the world right now is how do we overcome all of the differences, all of the misunderstandings, all of the hate between people? Is we share one spirit who helps us to celebrate our differences, but also helps us to realize that we have more in common in Christ than we have differences between us. Jesus, by his spirit, is the answer to the problems that we see in the world right now. And so we work really hard to be an expression of heaven on earth, to be a diverse family that's unified in Christ. Now that's really hard to do and it takes time and no one has a quick solution to that, but we value that as the church and we try to create heaven on earth by being one family. So Jesus teaches us how to live. He shows us who we are but then he's got to argue with us about who we are. So Jesus, by his spirit, argues with you about who you are. So even though we now know who we are in Christ, that we're a part of this new amazing family in him, we are constantly having an identity crisis. So right now we'll be together talking about Jesus and all the things that the Holy Spirit can do in our lives. But 10 minutes after you shut off this feed, you will forget that. <laughs> And you'll go back to sort of the default setting of your heart, which is self-reliance and self-dependence and sin. And you'll forget about this unbelievable new identity is getting wrapped up into the Trinity. You'll forget how amazing that is and you'll pursue something else. We're constantly having an identity crisis. And so we need to be reminded constantly of who we are. And so here's what's true about the Holy Spirit throughout scripture and in this text in particular, is if you look at different translations, they'll use different words for who he is. So you might see some translations that say counselor. You'll see other translations that say helper. You'll see other ones that say advocate. Now, when you come across instances like that, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with the English language again. So there's a, a reality that's so deep about who God is in his spirit that we don't have words to communicate it in English, but I think the best word for the Holy Spirit is advocate. Um, and Tim Keller argues for why that is, um, and, he, and he talked about what the root word of the Spirit or the advocate is. It's the word parakaleo. So para means someone who's alongside you. So the Holy Spirit is always with you and he's always for you. Okay, even just that part of the word is super encouraging constantly with you, constantly for you. But the second part of that kaleo means to declare or to argue. So the Holy Spirit 
is an advocate in the sense that what does an advocate do? An advocate comes alongside of you and argues your case. But where that gets confusing is typically an advocate is arguing your case to another person. That's primarily what Jesus does is he argues your case and your innocence in him before God and before the accuser, Satan. But actually the spirit is an advocate in a, in a slightly different way and that he's primarily advocating for you to you. Here's what I mean is he is arguing with you about your new identity and how you should live as a result. And so here's what the spirit does is he argues to you about your sin and he argues to you about your fear and doubts. All right, so the Holy Spirit argues with your sin. So verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we said that all of this information about the Holy Spirit hinges on that idea that if we love Jesus, we actually will follow him. We actually will obey him. We'll keep his commandments. But here's the problem is that you will consistently forget that following Jesus is better than living in sin. And, and in fact, before you had the Holy Spirit, you had no chance of not sinning. So, so even if you wanted to obey Jesus, even if you wanted to be a moral person, even if you would read the Bible and sort of resolve, I'm going to live differently this time, what happens in that moment of temptation is you inevitably will be convinced that sin is a better life for you and you always pursue whatever life you think is best. And so you would fall into sin. But here's what the Holy Spirit does in that moment as he comes into your mind and he speaks truth to you and he reminds you, no, you're a child of God now. This is how you used to live, but this isn't who you are anymore. And what you've discovered is that Jesus always has the best life for you. Remember the ways that Jesus has always come through for you in the past. And anytime he's asked you to do something difficult, it's always been worth it. It's always been good. It's always been better. He's worth following. The, the spirit argues with you when you're in that moment of temptation. He fights against you for you. And so now you don't actually have to give into sin but you can agree with the Holy Spirit. Actually, one thing I'm trying to do right now is when I'm in that moment of temptation, when I'm, when I'm wanting to sin, when, I'm, when I catch myself becoming angry or greedy or whatever, when I catch that, I try to label the voices in my head. And so when there's this argument going on about what I should do or how I should act, I try and label them as like, no, that's sin, that's Satan. This is the Holy Spirit. And once I label that, I'm able to step back and say, what? like, no, of course I want to follow the Holy Spirit, not my sin. Learn to listen to his voice. But here's the second thing that the Holy Spirit argues is he argues with you over your fear and your doubts. So this, this is what Jesus said in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now fear is really unhelpful when there's no reason to be afraid. So some of you know what this is like to live in constant fear or constant anxiety. And when there's no need for fear or anxiety, it's super unhelpful. But fear is actually incredibly helpful in the right circumstances when it's used rightly because it helps you alert you of danger, right? So if I'm out camping and a grizzly bear shows up and is about to attack me, that fear 
is actually pretty helpful. And so a friend standing next to you in that moment as a grizzly bear is char charging down on you saying, do not be troubled, do not be afraid, is not actually a super helpful friend. Hopefully that friend in that moment is like, run or, or play dead or I don't know where we're at with that. It like depends on what type of bear. I don't know which, I just stay, why do you go to places where there's bears? I just stay away from them. But so whatever. So the friend is telling you how to get away from the bear or outrun your friend, whatever. So it, it actually is pretty tone deaf when things are going wrong and there's legitimate things to be afraid of to tell you, hey, don't be afraid. And my guess is that's what the disciples are feeling in this moment, is Jesus has been talking about how he's about to leave them and they're terrified. And they're about to walk through the most awful circumstance that any of them have ever been through. They're about to watch their savior die. And these guys, they've left everything that they had. They don't have careers anymore. They've left their families to follow this guy around the earth for years. And now he's saying that he is going to leave them. And my guess is some of them, as Jesus is saying, do not be afraid. They're feeling this sense of, what do you, what do you mean? Like we have everything to be afraid of. And some of you might be feeling this in this current moment. You've heard some of the comfort of scripture and it doesn't feel very comforting to you because you are afraid. You are hurting. You feel like the events that are going on in the world are not just out there, but they're in here. They feel like they're, they're against you and they're hurting you and they're opening up old wounds and the world feels like a terrifying reality. So how can Jesus come into that reality and say, don't be afraid? Well, the answer is, is because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Satan and everything evil in the world are terrified of Jesus, not the other way around. Satan's knees knock when he hears the name of Jesus Christ. And that name is living inside of you by the Spirit. And so that means that there's no circumstance that you can ever have ever or will ever have that will make you afraid because Jesus is always in control and he's always good to you. And that's perfectly evidenced by what he did for the disciples on the cross is that he says, do not be troubled. And then he backs it up with action by dying on the cross for them. He takes on all of the trouble that was coming their way and he puts it on himself so that they don't have to experience it personally. That's what Jesus does. That's who he is. And so when he says, you do not have to be afraid. What that means is at a macro level in your life, there's nothing you ever have to be afraid of ever because Jesus has won. And the enemy itself, death itself couldn't hold him. He came to life and he's bringing you to life, which means that you don't have to be troubled and you don't have to be afraid. All of your fear, all of your troubledness is just left over from your life before Christ, but in him there is no fear. So let's end on this, verse 27 again. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give you. So honestly, when Jesus says, not as the world gives, do I give, I don't know exactly what he, what he means by that, but he's saying, whatever peace the world offers you is inadequate. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the comfort, whatever the things that you tend to run towards in life, ultimately cannot give you peace, but Jesus can. And again, English fails us here because peace does not just mean absence of conflict, but it means the presence of flourishing in all things. 
the, the presence of goodness all the time throughout all of your life. And here's the reality is the only place you can find that is in Christ by his spirit. And yes, ultimately the only way that we'll experience the goodness and the, the shalom of peace fully is in heaven. But Jesus is starting to bring heaven here by his spirit. And so in his spirit, let him renovate your entire life. Let him transform you into the image of Jesus. Because living his way is the only way to experience peace. You won't find it anywhere else. And it's really hard to live like Jesus. It's a high expectation on your life. It will involve the reworking of everything in your life, but it's worth it because in him you can find peace. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the hope that you've given us in your Holy Spirit. Thanks for not leaving us as orphans, but coming to us and giving us actually what, what you said in John 16 is crazy that it, it's so good that having the spirit is even better than having you next to us. God in us is better than, than God beside us. And so even when it feels like the world is just going crazy, we have so much hope in you. And God, would you help us to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Help us to learn how to listen to you, Holy Spirit, and to follow you and to start to look more like Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to believe that it's possible that we can become like Jesus on this earth. That you have the power to do that by your spirit, Jesus. And help us to be willing to do anything that we need to do to experience that reality because it's worth it. Holy Spirit, we, we love you. We want to know more of you. We want to listen to your voice. We want to be a church that lives in your power and your goodness so that we can honor Jesus in the world. And so let that be true. Amen.